Let's stand together as Bill comes this morning to read our scripture. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or a sister, Racha, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord from Matthew 5, 21 through 30. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as we dive into the heart of chapter 5, where Jesus talks a lot about some commands that we find in Scripture and what it looks like to follow God's commands with every part of our being, not just to follow the letter of the law or just to be religious, but, but truly to have a Christ-like heart, a Christ-like attitude and Christ-like actions in our life. I want to begin with a story that is a personal story and perhaps a bit of a personal confession. I honestly had not even thought about this thing that happened to me in a long time. It was over 10 years ago that it happened, but in a conversation recently, it came back to mind, and it just seems fitting for where we begin this part of Matthew chapter 5. So again, it was over 10 years ago. I was driving in Fort Worth, Texas, and let's just say I was on my way to a really important meeting. It was a meeting that I had been preparing for for months, and though I felt very well prepared, I was incredibly nervous. And even though I had driven this part of this highway in Fort Worth many, many times, for some reason I got off on the wrong exit. 
And as I was on the wrong exit, I realized it, and I decided I was going to try to make a quick move to get back on the highway. In doing so, I cut off a guy in a big, giant pickup truck. And so realizing that this wasn't going to work, I got back into my lane. I decided I'd just drive another mile and try to get on the highway. But that wasn't good enough for the man in the pickup truck. He swerved around the other side of me. We stopped next to each other at a red light. And he rolled down his window and man, did he start giving it to me. Let me tell you, he was losing his mind, calling me every name in the book. And he was going on and on and on, and I kept waiting for him to take a breath just so I could say I was sorry. At some point, he randomly switched to like an Australian accent and called me mate. I'm not sure what that was about, but he just kept going and going and going. And I felt that tension rising up in me, but again, I was on my way to a really important meeting that I had prepared for there was almost nothing that was going to distract me from that. And so I finally just said, not today, Satan, right? I'm, I'm not getting drug into this. The guy finally took a breath. I said, I'm sorry, my bad, didn't mean to cut you off. Have a nice day. And he just kept going. So I rolled up my window, the light turned green, and thankfully he went this way and I went this way and the matter was settled. Now, I, I come off in that story sounding really good. But let me tell you, I've not always handled those situations well. In fact, people who know me well would not be surprised that I sometimes am tempted in situations like that to make things worse. I'm tempted to egg it on and to try to, to, to make that anger boil over. I don't know why, it's just a temptation I have. And though it sounds like I handled that situation in such a pious way, the truth is that one was easy because I had somewhere to be. And I wasn't going to engage in that kind of nonsense, at least not in that moment. But boy, there have been many other times in my life, whether when being in a tense situation, somebody who's not acting right and lowering myself to their level where I have failed. And there have been lots of other times in my life where I've faced temptation. And instead of doing what the Bible says, fleeing away from it, resisting it with everything in me, I've given in to temptation. And I can only imagine that for every single one of us sitting in the room together, watching online, no matter your age, that that's your story too. Sometimes you do well, sometimes you fall. Many times in our lives we fail. And so when we come to this hard teaching in Matthew chapter 5, we could be tempted to be discouraged because whether it's Jesus talking about anger or lust or not seeking revenge or keeping our word, or loving our enemies. In every one of these areas, Jesus is going to step on our toes. So we could be discouraged and feel like Jesus is giving us such a high standard here, we can never live up to it. But rather than being discouraged, I want you to be encouraged that Jesus, in this teaching, knows that every single one of us have failed in these areas. We may have kept the letter of the law and checked the box by saying, I've never committed that physical act, but in our hearts, we've been condemned. And so what Jesus is reminding us here, it goes back to the words we began this section with last week. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He came to show us that all of God's promises to his people are coming to pass in Jesus Christ. 
and he also came to fulfill the law to show us that he is our example so we don't have to look to ourselves to be the perfect example and we can't even find success in looking around the room at everyone else but when we look to jesus who fulfills every command in the law and the prophets we see the example of what a christ-like god-honoring holy and pure life looks like to our heavenly father and when we hold up jesus as our example we can do this because christ in us means we can do all things so i want to encourage you in that we've all failed we're all in the same boat this morning and I also want to encourage you, if you're a person like me who can say there are some things that you've been battling with your whole life, and you've on more than one occasion said to God, will you please take this away from me? Lord, would you please remove this thing that's like a thorn in my flesh so that I'll no longer battle this sin anymore? Here's my encouragement for you. Stay in the fight. Because when you're in the fight, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. When it becomes a bad thing is when we give up the fight. And we just stop trying. We give in. And we no longer remain dependent on the Lord and continue to battle and wrestle against that thing or those things, whatever they may be. For those of us who are in the fight with sin and things that we struggle with, we're in good company because we're in this together. And Jesus here in this part of the Sermon on the Mount gives us some really excellent, wise teaching about what the transformed life looks like. If we're seeking to live the transformed life, we are being transformed into the image of Christ himself. Then Jesus is giving us some pictures of what that looks like. And I want to give us this statement that as we talk about what it means to be true disciples this morning, that I'm going to hang over both of these two commands that we're beginning with here in this part of Matthew chapter 5. Here's the statement. God sees all of our hearts, all of our ways, and all of our steps. And he commands us to pursue Christ-likeness in them all. That is, we're being transformed into the image of Christ that we would pursue Christ's likeness in our hearts, in our ways, and in our steps. In the beginning, we're going to take two commands at a time these next three Sundays. Jesus begins with anger, and he says, True disciples, resist anger and hatred, and pursue peacemaking and reconciliation. Now, if you think about the culture in which we live, our nation, our world, even at times our own community. This does not describe what most of our world looks like. Resisting anger, resisting hatred, pursuing peacemaking and reconciliation. But thou shalt not murder is not a high enough standard for the true disciple of Jesus Christ. Almost every society in the world has as their most fundamental law, you shouldn't kill someone else. But Jesus says for the true disciple, the standard is much higher than just I've not physically killed somebody or I've not perpetrated an act of violence with my hands. Jesus says those who have anger in their heart 
towards their brother or sister are still subject to judgment. Why? Because anger and hatred flow in the same stream as murder and violence. And oftentimes one leads to another. A person might think that they would never be capable of committing the physical act of violence. But when that anger and bitterness and hatred takes root in our hearts, it flows in the same stream and it can lead a person to do something that they once thought unimaginable. They flow together in the same stream. And Jesus, as a consistent theme through this part of the Sermon on the Mount, says it's not enough to just say, I haven't done it yet. But God is concerned with what is in our hearts. And this was not a new command. Jesus, as he re restates these commands he also reminds them of words that god had been saying to his people all along like leviticus 19 do not hate a fellow israelite in your heart god said rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt but do not re seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people instead love your neighbor as yourself I am the Lord. True disciples resist anger and hatred, and through their love for their neighbor, they pursue reconciliation, peacemaking. Jesus continues and gets practical. He uses some examples of language. He says anyone who says to their brother or sister, Raka, could be in danger of being brought before the Sanhedrin. Raka was an Aramaic insult that you could say to someone that in certain settings they could bring you before the Sanhedrin and have charges brought against you because you used this hateful word to them. The Aramaic word Raka means something in English like a numbskull. It doesn't sound that offensive, but in the ancient world of Judea, it was. But Jesus says if you say to someone Raka, you could be brought before the Sanhedrin. If you say to someone, more, the word more means fool. It's where we get our word moron. If you say to someone, more, you're in dangers of the fire of hell. Those of you who, like me, grew up in the 1980s, you might be thinking, boy, Mr. T would be in big trouble with this command from the Sermon on the Mount. If you call someone a fool, you're in danger of the fires of hell. But I want you to think about that word, less in terms of somebody who's not intelligent or someone who makes bad decisions think about the book in the bible where that word comes up the most we read from it this morning it's the book of proverbs and when you see that word fool in the book of proverbs if this has confused you and you wonder why this is so important that jesus says not to call someone this every time you see that word in the book of proverbs it talks about someone who has rejected god it talks about someone who is making decisions that have them on the path to destruction, the path to death, the path to hell. And so when someone in the ancient Jewish world used this word, they were literally saying to them, God does not love you. You do not belong to him. I reject the value that God has placed on your life. You are no longer one of us. It is a strong, strong word of rejection and dismissal of the personhood of another human being so jesus says look it's not 
just about the words you use either if that kind of attitude is in your heart if you find that kind of anger welling up to the point that you reject your brother or sister completely beware the sanhedrin is the least of your fears what's in danger for you is rejecting of god as rejecting god this may even be evidence that the love of god is not in you at all and then as jesus loves to do in the sermon on the mount he continues to be practical and he says before you come to worship so you reject you resist the anger the hatred but also in pursuing peacemaking and reconciliation before you come to worship before you bring your offering before you bring your gift if you know that a brother or sister has something against you not just that you have something against them but you if you know that there is not peace between you and a brother or sister make it right before you come to worship you take the initiative you seek the reconciliation if it's someone that's dragging you to court don't wait till you get to court to settle the matter because it might be too late at that point you might find yourself in jail and you won't get out until you pay every last penny no make it right on the road and then once there's peace once there's reconciliation then come to worship then offer your gift then you can come into the presence of god knowing that your relationships are where they're supposed to be i love what c.s lewis said he said everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has someone to forgive but jesus says forgiveness it's a condition it's a an attribute of the true disciple it's a theme that comes up time and again in the sermon on the mount you'll remember back in the beginning in the beatitudes blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy and blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of god thanks be to god in jesus christ that when he commands us to be quick to forgive he has been quick to forgive us amen with all the darkness and sin that god knows is in our hearts he still was quick to forgive us he still fulfilled his promise and sent christ to die for us even though we had sinned against him just as god is quick to forgive us we are to be quick to forgive others and yes god surely wants our worship and our offerings and our gifts and our sacrifices but none of those things have meaning if he doesn't have our hearts and so he says first make things right in your heart make things right with your brother or sister be full of mercy be quick to forgive and then come back to worship if you've heard this scripture once you've heard it a dozen times this year john 13 35 jesus said by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if they see that you love one another if you want to stand out as a person who is being transformed in the image of christ boy in this culture you will stand out when you love others and when you pursue peacemaking and reconciliation true disciples are held to a much higher standard than just thou shall not murder and true disciples also resist immoral desires and behavior 
and instead pursue holiness and purity. Again, God sees all of our hearts, our ways, and our steps, and he commands us to seek Christ-likeness in them all. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If adultery is a physical act of sexual sin, lust is the fuel for adultery. Just as anger leads to murder, so does lust lead to sin and is sin itself. James, the apostle, said it this way, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This is the way temptation works, and sexual temptation works, that it tempts you, it tries to drag you away from the place of holiness and purity that is Christ-like where God would have you to be. And if we follow that allure, that desire begins to give birth. It, it, it conceives actual sin in our hearts, which can become sin with our lives. And that sin is like a cancer. It is so toxic, it is so deadly, that when it takes root and when it starts to give birth to worse and worse things, it will lead us to death. It will destroy us. I love the way John Chrysostom, my favorite preacher outside of the New Testament, talked about lust. He said, Lust, like a wild beast, preys on you to look once, then twice, then three times. And once that furnace is kindled within you, you will assuredly be overcome. That's why Jesus warned that even looking with lust is a sin. If we see a child holding a knife, even though no physical harm has been done, we scold the child and forbid the child to do so ever again. In the same way, God forbids the lustful look before the act so that we will not at any time fall into the act also. Thus Christ removes even the sinful act that is in the heart only. Just as James wrote, just as Jesus warned. When we talk about the transformed life, when it comes to anger and hatred, true disciples are held to a much higher standard than just thou shall not murder. And when it comes to lust and sinful immoral desires, true disciples of Jesus Christ are held to a much higher standard than simply you shall not commit adultery. And I think it's important to note here that the women can struggle with lust as well, certainly. Jesus addresses men here. He's addressing an ancient culture where men had all the power and all the authority, and in many cases, even in the Jewish world, men could commit sexual sins with no consequences because more often than not, it was a matter of power and property than it was personal purity. We'll talk more about this next week when we get into the next command. But here I think it's important to speak to men this responsibility that God gives us to, to not just resist acting out sexual sin, but to resist and flee from lust and from the desire to commit sexual sin with everything in us. 
a verse from Scripture that I have found very helpful since I was a young man and first started walking with the Lord. It comes from one of the first men in the Bible to be called righteous, from Job. Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. What a great passage of Scripture to call to mind men on a regular basis, young men on a regular basis to remember the covenant that we've made with the Lord. Now, now anytime we talk about difficult topics like this, I'm always aware that though most people in the room are adults, we also always have some young ears listening. So I promise you for what I'm going to say in the next 45 seconds, I'm going to be very cautious and I've chosen my words carefully. But I do want to address for just a moment the issue of pornography. In our culture, in our world, Pornography is an epidemic all in its own right. And it is an incredible perversion of what God has set forth as his standards for sexual purity. But even more than that, more than just being based on lust and sinful, it is about degradation. Pornography treats people, human beings, like objects. And makes us think that they're objects only to be used for our own gratification. When we fall into that temptation, listen, we are sinning against the image of God in people. That God would never ever want his people, his disciples, to treat another human being like an object. To dehumanize them, to degrade them to that level. And certainly most of you know this, but in case you don't, most of the global pornography industry is tied to human trafficking. It is dark in every possible way. And so I plead with you, man or woman, if that's a struggle you have in your life, I plead with you to resist it, to reject it, to join the fight against it. And if it's a struggle for you, young or old, find someone to help you. Because this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. This kind of sin leads to death. It will destroy who you are as a person. The statistics would tell us that there are many people in this room that struggle in this way. If there's anything I can do as your pastor or we can do as your church to help you find help, do it. But this is an important part of thinking through the way Jesus describes lust. And the sin in our hearts. The last part of the text. Boy, this has to be one of the most difficult parts of the Sermon on the Mount to be able to interpret. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Of course, if Jesus meant this literally, then there would be lots of Christian people who only have one eye and only have one hand, right? I don't see a lot of people in church that way. But before we're tempted to just see this as hyperbole, I don't want us to miss the force of what Jesus is saying. His language is strong here. He's using the language that people would understand. These were punishments that they knew. It was written into the law. If, if you committed a sin with your eye, like voyeurism, then, then by law, your eyes could be gouged out. Consider you committed a sin with your hand like stealing. Your, your hand could be cut off. And so Jesus is using language that they understand strongly and forcefully to say, take whatever means are necessary to remove that sin from your life. Take whatever means are necessary to the most extreme point 
that you would no longer have that kind of sin in your heart, but instead you would radically pursue holiness and purity. Jesus is calling for much more than just the fear of punishment. He's telling all of us to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That we would not fall into the deadliest of traps. That language of stumbling block, it's the word scandalize. And it literally means to fall into a trap that ensnares you and ultimately kills you. Jesus is reminding us, pleading with us to guard our hearts that as true disciples, we pursue a life of holiness and purity and an even greater loyalty to the kingdom of heaven and not the kingdom of this world. God sees all of our hearts, our ways, and our steps and commands us to pursue Christ-likeness in them all. And listen, I'll tell you, these are not easy things to preach and teach on. Because every single one of us, including me, have struggled with these kinds of sins in our hearts. But thanks be to God that we're not alone in this. And also that what Jesus is calling us to is absolute dependence upon him. As I said in the beginning, if you're in the fight, that you would stay in the fight. And that you would continue daily to say to the Lord, I am completely dependent upon you as I struggle and battle and fight this thing. Without you, I can do nothing. But with you, God, all things are possible. And as we affirm our complete dependence upon him, because we've all failed in these areas, can I tell you a secret that's no secret? That's exactly where God wants us to be. He wants us to live every moment as we are being transformed into the image of Christ as true disciples in complete dependence upon him. So as we move into our time now of invitation and response, I ask you the simple question, is that where you are today? Are you living completely and truly dependent upon him for everything you are? Would you pray with me? I know we've pushed a little bit past noon, but boy, it's been for some good reasons. We've had some wonderful things in worship today. And I want to ask you to not take these last minutes of worship that we have for granted. We've talked about some heavy things. In both services, I could feel a heaviness in the room. But would you just know today that God loves you There is nothing in your life that is a surprise to him. He sees all of your heart, all of your ways, all of your steps. Today, would you be willing to say, whoever you are, wherever you are, I'm giving my all to Jesus Christ. My entire life is dependent upon him. Today, if you have never confessed Jesus as your Savior and Lord for the first time, our ministers are going to be at the front here in just a moment. And we invite you as we sing one last song to step out and to come to Christ today. If you know that Christ is calling you to himself, come to Christ and we would love to tell you more about how you can confess your sin, turn from your sin, look to the cross and know the salvation that Jesus brings to your soul. For those of you who are disciples, 
Would you just spend this moment however you need to? If you need to come forward for prayer, if you need to come pray at the altar or just there where you're standing or seated, would you spend this last moment just telling him, Lord, I am completely dependent upon you. I surrender my all to you. Christ, I give you my all today. And Lord, I pray that for each person here, that would be the cry of our hearts. And Lord, that you would remind us that it's not just that you want us to be obedient in our actions, but you want our hearts as well. Help us to be people of purity and holiness. And Lord, help us to continue to grow in Christ-likeness in a way that pleases our Heavenly Father. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.